ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. What's been striking about her is that you see so many of the people around the president being damaged by this investigation, and I think um, she played it brilliantly. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, FP's Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm joined in the studio today by FP's print editor, Sarah Wildman, and column FP's award-winning UN-based senior diplomatic reporter is joining us over the phone from New York. Today, we wanted to focus on a key figure in the Trump administration, Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Column has been reporting on Haley since the beginning of her time at the United Nations and recently published two major articles on her for foreign policy. Uh, The first, a profile, examined how Haley appears to be setting herself up for a possible presidential run and the ways in which her approach to the role has differed from those before her. And the second, recently appearing in the print magazine, looks at her record on human rights. For me, reading these pieces and others that column is reported, what emerges is a very nuanced portrait of a figure who believes in certain values like human rights and has had a moderating influence on some respects of the Trump administration. But ultimately, her eye has been on something else. And column, you have this very telling quote in your profile of her from a U.N. Security Council diplomat who says it's become increasingly obvious that she is running for something, which is fine. But the diplomat says that means she is up to more than promoting the U.S. interests at the U.N. So, Colin, the first question, is Nikki Haley running for president in 2020? Apparently, yes. Of course, they deny it. Her office has said that she's focused on the task that's at hand, which is what you would say if you were running a stealth presidential campaign. You know, one of the things that I noticed at the, at the beginning of the term is that a lot of her colleagues were, were very kind of grateful that she was sort of focused on trying to kind of, you know, repair the relationship between the Trump presidency and the Trump White House and the UN, which was, you know, not so great during the campaign. And so, you know, they saw her as kind of, you know, someone who was really focused on the work at hand of, you know, dealing with issues like UN peacekeeping, um, you know, working on uh, sort of North Korea, all the major issues, um, you, you know, Ukraine, Russia. But more and more, she's kind of been moving, you know, particularly as sort of dealing with issues involving the Middle East, she seems to be moving into more extreme position. So in Jerusalem, she has been pushing for things like cutting off all aid uh, to you know, to millions of Palestinian refugees, uh, a position that's popular, you know, really only on the far right on, in Israel and in the United States. She has kind of moved farther to the right on on Iran, you know, as 
Secretary Tillerson has kind of been trying to dissuade the president from cutting off a nuclear deal with Iran that's quite popular with all of America's allies. So there is a sense that, that, you know, that she was a very moderating kind of figure in her earlier months. And now as she's kind of moved into these sort of hot button issues that really resonate politically, particularly with the kind of conservative Republican base, that she's kind of moving into, you know, that she's kind of moving away from a kind of diplomatic role and she's becoming much more political and that this is sort of, you know, sort of placing considerable strains on her relationship with some of the allies. Well, one relationship that doesn't seem to be strained, which I find absolutely mysterious given the administration, is Trump has not directed a lot of anger at her. He has, it seems, at many other cabinet members, at his national security advisor, and she's escaped pretty unscathed, which is amazing, particularly if she's setting herself up for a run in 2020. That would presumably be in part in the Republican primaries against Trump. How has she managed to sort of emerge unscathed? Well, I think partly because she's been able to deliver victories for him. So the one issues that the president can point to in terms of achievements or, you know, certainly before this announcement about organizing a sort of face-to-face meeting with the North Korean leader was the passage of two very tough resolutions imposing sanctions on the North Koreans. And those were negotiated and delivered in, you know, the span of a little bit over a week. If you think about these kinds of resolutions and how long it took to negotiate them in the past, it was generally required, um, you know, months of, of sort of intense negotiations with the Chinese. Um, she was probably aided to a certain degree by the fact that the Trump's, you know, kind of belligerent language about North Korea and threats of possible military action, you know, were able to focus the Chinese government's mind on trying to come up with some sort of diplomatic outcome to avert some sort of military confrontation. But nevertheless, she has delivered this. And, and she gets, you know, she gets a lot of really good press, something that none of his other cabinet members receive. And, and you know, maybe he sees that as something that sort of reflects well on him. I mean, she recently came out with a statement, you know, several weeks ago in which she showed some sympathy for the number of women that had accused President Trump of sexual misconduct. And she kind of got away with that, you know, unscathed. And, and I'm sure that he wasn't happy about that. I mean, she said that these women deserve to have their, you know, concerns heard. And that was something I don't think that the president appreciated, but she somehow survived. So she's been able to maneuver through this administration with incredible ease and success and has sort of come out of it without getting beaten down like a lot of the a lot of her colleagues. You know, I think that this seems part and parcel with how she came on to sort of national recognition with the Confederate flag story from 2015. I mean, she was quite became well known on the national stage, it seems to me, when she took down the flag. And I wonder if you could talk about that and how that positions her, because some of the statements that she's made on human rights outside of uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, which we can get to, are actually more in line with the kind of a more center-right Republican Party, a little bit more of a kind of normative Republican Party rather than the kind of far-right populist language that we were hearing from a lot of sort of Trump administration supporters and uh, mouthpieces over the course of the last year and a half. Right. What, what's extraordinary is that if you look at, you know, the president's comments on the way that he wants to develop his relationship with Russia for a while during the campaign and the early period of his administration, he kind of was open to the idea of maybe, 
engaging in some sort of interaction with um, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria in the fight against ISIS. She comes in to this position and immediately presents an entirely contrary foreign policy, which is completely closely aligned with traditional Republican internationalists. So very tough on Putin, says he, you know, he's not a, he's not a credible partner for negotiation, um, you know, is calling Assad a war criminal, is, you know, underscoring the fact that Crimea is still part of Ukraine. Very tough. She's talking about the importance of promoting human rights. I mean, it's somewhat selective. It tends to be focused on countries we don't like so much, like Venezuela and Iran. But she is clearly kind of um, articulating a foreign policy that is completely contra, you know, it, it contrast to what we've been hearing from the White House. And I think that that, in a way, reflected a desire to kind of solidify her relationship with the kind of more mainstream Republicans that, um, you know, presumably, you know, would still be around in the event that, that Trumpism sort of runs out of steam at some point. Colm, can you talk a little bit about her, I don't know what to call it, a shift on her position on Israel, where it seems like she's moving much further to the right, and including uh, UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, where she sort of reversed course from supporting it to wanting to cut it. Can you talk about what's driving that, what she's done, and, and what factors are at work there? Right. So in the beginning, in the early months, I mean, she very much wants to make humanitarian relief kind of part of her political brand. She takes a trip to the region. She goes to um, she goes to uh, to Jordan. She goes to Turkey, and then she goes to, um, to Israel and the Palestinian territories. And she pays a visit to an UNRWA, an UNRWA funded and supported um, uh, uh, camp for Palestinian refugees. She returns to Washington. She makes the case before you know a skeptical conservatives in Congress, including Ileana Rose Lettinen, uh, who want to dismantle um, UNRWA. And she makes the case that, you know, you got to understand this organization. We have some issues with it. Um, you know, we think it needs to be reformed. But, you know, I saw firsthand the good things that it's done. It's important. We, you know, if we sort of withdraw all our money and stop all of these programs that we're supporting, you know, it could lead to instability and all of these other issues. So she's very kind of moderate. She's quietly assuring UNRWA that she will maintain U.S. funding for the organization, which is a lot of money. It's about $350 million a year. And then the whole, um, you know, December 6th, President Trump announces that um, he's going to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and that um, he's going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Um, that sets off like a big, you know, diplomatic kind of storm, you know, lots of opposition. The Palestinians come to the U.N. They push for a resolution denouncing the decision, the Security Council, and later, later in front of the General Assembly. So this puts the Americans and it puts Haley in a totally isolated position. Uh, she has to veto a resolution criticizing the pres president's decision that turned out that was like a 14 to 1 vote. They were totally isolated. And so at this point, you know, you see her kind of totally reversing and, and, and no longer is it focused on sort of a kind of more nuanced view about aid to the Palestinian refugees. It's very much about um, the Palestinians have 
insulted the United States. This is an affront to American sovereignty. We have the right to put our embassy anywhere we want. And so all of a sudden, she sort of changes position, and then she becomes the most outspoken um, cabinet member, along with Jared Kushner, who are pushing for a total of cutoff of aid um, to Palestinian refugees. And so um, it's hard to say whether, you know, to what degree this is about domestic politics, to what degree it's personalized, that she feels a sense of personal grievance at having been, um, you know, at, at, at having been sort of placed in this position of being isolated in the Security Council and the General Assembly. But but the, the Nikki Haley who emerges from this is very much a different um, figure than than we've seen before on these issues. I mean, she's always been very pro-Israeli. She pro-Israeli. She had been, uh, the, I think, the first uh, governor to support uh, legislation uh, opposing um, boycotts against Israel. Um, so you know, she's always had sort of a good position, but she but she comes out of this in in a much more um, kind of extreme position that that she had sort of you know set up for herself earlier. You know, you talk a lot about how how her pro-Israel positions make her stand out, but I'm really curious about how different, outside of the funding for the Palestinians, which does seem to be a a break of some kind, uh, but I'm curious about how different it really is from Samantha Power and Susan Rice, because the United States in the UN has again and again fought for Israel, and and UN representatives have spoken at APAC, the Israel lobby, and they, you know, during the Obama administration, they weren't often that well received. But their actions on the floor of the UN don't seem to me all that different until Jerusalem. So is it that up until the Jerusalem decision, something shifts? Or is it that she's particularly more pro-Israel? I, I'm, I'm curious about how you differentiate between the two. I would say the difference is is that with the Obama administration, I mean, you're right. The Obama administration was, you know, bending over backward to um, to defend um, the rights of the of Israel at the UN, at the UN Human Rights Council, and um, were generally, um, you know, sort of a reliable ally and backing pretty much anything the Israelis wanted. But, however, um, you know, there was a lot of concern about where Israel was headed, uh, particularly with, um, you know, Benjamin, Prime Minister Netanyahu's sort of famous uh, quote during his own election about, um, you know, doubts about the viability of a two-state solution. So, you know, you see at that point, you see the Obama administration toughening its its kind of relationship with uh, with Israel and, and, and also, you know, seeking I think, you know, uh, a, a strategy that puts them in a kind of in a slightly more neutral position than I think, you know, the Trump administration is trying. So, you know, they didn't entirely alienate their relationship, the relationship with the Israelis. They didn't totally alienate the relationship with the Palestinians. Whereas with this administration, um, you get the sense of being uh, of them being kind of more sort of all in with uh, the Israeli government. And so um, less concern with um, with taking sort of an even-handed approach. So, I mean, that would be the difference. I mean, you, you would see the Obama administration, Samantha Power, very critical of the treatment of Israel in the Human Rights Council, where they are singled out more than any other country for criticism of their human rights. Uh, this is in an institution that um, many uh, abusers of human rights get kind of a free pass. China, for instance, big powers, Russia, um, um, don't get criticized in the way that uh, a country like Israel does. So I think that there was 
quite you know a big effort by um, the Obama administration to to you know to fix that and uh, but I think that they felt that they could get more out of it by engaging with the council. Um, she has engaged uh, Haley has engaged with the council as well, but always you know with the sort of threat that if you don't um, do what we want you to do, then we're going to pull out of the organization. So a more confrontational role, a blunter role than you would have seen um, with the Obama administration. And in terms of Israel, I mean, if I recall correctly, Haley recently appeared um, at the APEC convention in Washington, D.C., where she got basically the equivalent of a standing ovation. She sort of stole the show, some people said. So can you talk about why is this so she has moved on this issue? Why is this so critical for her? Is it in terms of a funding base for a future run or it's just sort of an issue that she sees as a home run for her to sort of establish her conservative credentials? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I've been talking to sort of Republican, you know, strategists and people who kind of, um, you know, work in these, you know, Republican campaigns. And the view that I got was that taking a more hardline position on Jerusalem, taking a more hardline position on the Iran um, nuclear deal, pushing for uh decertification. I mean, she hasn't pushed for decertification, but she's almost provided in, in a speech early in, in uh, late last year at the American Enterprise Institute, she made the, the sort of the intellectual case for decertification. So the sense was from people I was talking to that these are, are, are kind of target-rich areas within the Republican donor base and that those are areas where, you know, it, you know, it's not out of the mainstream of the Republican Party, but it's further to the right, but it's also um, an area, and these are issues which generate considerable donor funding. So there is kind of a feeling that um, this is sort of, in a sense, playing to that donor base and sort of, you know, preparing for the future that you would, you, that you would be kind of on solid ground politically uh, with, you know, with some of the donors. So, you know, I think what's interesting here, though, is does that mean that Haley is constructing an identity and a political future that is really domestic focused as opposed to wanting to continue on on the international stage on the one hand? And and the other is, I guess the question is, and I, I sort of want us to move away from Israel-Palestine and look at a, a couple of the places where she has pushed hard on human rights, uh, you know, in South Sudan, for example, uh, in, and in Iran. But the question for me is, does her inconsistency then isolate her further and, and make it difficult for her to broker the kind of backroom conversations that allow you know, the Security Council to function in ways that we don't often see? You know, I, I mean, one of the questions I, I, I've, I've had during the Trump administration is, is there a cost for the positions the United States is taking that are unpopular, so on the climate, on the Iran nuclear deal, and or, or are they immune to to any kind of you know penalties for this? I mean, and up until now, I don't see a lot of evidence that the Americans don't kind of get most of what they want, whether or not people are happy with the way the Trump administration conducts itself on the international stage. And, and part of this, I mean, I had a conversation with a European diplomat last week, and I was asking about this, and, and he said, well, part of it is that we're, we're, you know, we're kind of afraid that if we, if we make them pay a, a price for their conduct, that they'll just walk away from the institution, that there is this kind of fear that if we do something like, let's say, for instance, the Americans have pulled out of the uh, the global 
negotiations on a global compact or, or agreement on migration. Um, at the same time, the U.S. is sort of running a candidate for um, the International Organization for Migration. So the Europeans are trying to field their own candidate because they see that, that there's, you know, an opportunity. The Americans are not sort of part of the global consensus on the issue. Maybe we have a, a chance at getting this position and beating the Americans out of it. But there's also kind of a fear that if they, you know, if they you know, beat the Americans, that they may have to pay a price for it, that there may be some sort of reaction, a vindictive reaction, and it may cost them. Um, so it's it, like people make kind of interesting sort of calculation. And, you know, at some point, you know, the Americans are going to, this is going to have to have an impact on their kind of ability to get what they want at the United Nations. But at this point, um, you know, they get a lot. Colin, one last question. Um, so if Haley really were to run in 2020, just from a timing perspective, at what point does she kind of need to uh, go public with that? Um, this is probably the most important political calculation she's going to have to make. Um, you know, she, as I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, she seemed early on um, in the early months of the administration trying to sort of set herself apart from the Trump administration. She's, you know, kind of readjusted her position, moved closer to the president on some of these Middle East issues. But, you know, most observers sort of think that at some point um, she's going to have to break with the administration. And so that's a calculation that requires trying to imagine whether, for instance, President Trump will be reelected. Um, you wouldn't want to have too much distance between, you know, the ruling party if um, there's like six more years to go. Um, but there is also some, you know, suspicion, like, let's say um, the Mueller findings, the report turns out extremely damaging information about the president um, and, you know, members of his cabinet or the political campaign. Um, that could be a potentially, you know, uh, advantageous time to, to break with the president. I mean, what's been striking about her is that you see so many of the people around the president being damaged by this investigation. And I think um, she played it brilliantly in terms of um, very early on distancing herself from anything having to do with the Russians. And so, um, so I, so I don't know, you know, but I, I would say, I would say, keep your eye open after, you know, Mueller comes out with his, uh, with his, you know, his conclusions. Well, that'll be interesting to see. Colm, thanks for joining us from New York. Sarah, thanks. Thank and that's it for the ER. Join us next time. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Shelby Bostet. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? 
This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.